Um, but this study through Colossians 3 has, at least for me, been, been pretty timely. You know, when, when Kagan was praying, he was saying, like, that just asking God to share, that I share with you guys what God was showing me this week. And that's just been the whole theme through this Colossians 3 thing, man. God's using it to convict me and uh, just get me to see things the way I should be seeing them. And that's all I've been trying to communicate. So studying through Colossians 3 has been good for me. I hope it's been good for you. Uh, because we're through the first month of what promises to be a very interesting year. Um, who knew GameStop was going to come back this year? Uh, there's a lot of weird stuff going on this year. It seems like every week there's something weird to talk about. Um, so this is going to be an interesting year, and we're fr- through the first month, but uh, the whole theme of this chapter is trying to help us make sure that we've got our life pointed in the right direction, making sure we've got our attention focused on the things above rather than the things on the earth. Focusing on Jesus Christ, who is our life, like it says in Colossians 3, 4, rather than just focusing on ourselves. And as a result of having that focused, man, our life should be completely yielded to the Lord, allowing him to guide and direct our lives so that we can serve and glorify him, making sure we're doing the right things that we should be doing uh, that have the potential to affect eternity rather than just the stuff that affects here and now. Um, so we've talked a lot about it. We've talked about the fact that you have the choice of what to spend your time and energy on and how you should be making that decision carefully on a daily basis. Because if we choose to put our time and energy into things that are just temporary, there's going to come a time when this life is over that those things don't matter anymore. They'll be burned up in the fire because they're, they just don't last. But if we choose to put our time and energy into eternal things, our own personal growth and our pursuit of God's word, our personal fruit from evangelism and trying to win others to Christ, and our investment into one another through discipleship, those things last forever. And those things will survive the fire at the end of our life and continue to exist into eternity. And we'll be rewarded for those things that last. And this discussion in Colossians 3 has taken us through many aspects of our daily life. Your own personal life, how we interact with one another as members of a church body, how everything we do should be done with charity, how God gives us peace through even the most difficult circumstances, how we worship the Lord with one another, how we operate our family relationships, whether you're a husband or a wife or a parent or a child. And tonight we're gonna, we see how having our focus on the Lord should affect our work relationships. Specifically, Paul writes about this relationship between a servant and a master. And then he ends this discussion on the reassurance that service to Christ will result in rewards. And uh, if you haven't already, flip with me to Colossians 3, and I'm just going to read our passage tonight, uh, verses 22 through 25. It says, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. So we have a bit to wade through here to get a full understanding of this passage, but, passage, but the practical implication uh, is, is going to j- be as simple as it sounds. If we're focused on serving the Lord, then we're going to use our occupation uh, as another way of, of serving him. And we'll get to that. But shame on me if we don't do our due diligence and make sure that we grasp what Paul's writing about here fully. So let's dig in with point number one, your service. And that's what we see in verses 22 and 23. 
Um, and again, it says, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. And it's, port- and, and it's important to remember here that when you're studying the Bible, you'll find that everything in Scripture is going to have three different applications. If you're in the Jesus in Genesis class on Sunday mornings, Vinny talked about that uh, last Sunday. And I think the easiest way of tackling this passage is to go through each of those three applications because when Paul wrote this passage, he's writing it in three different contexts in which we can understand it. And the first one is letter A, the historical context. And what I mean by historical context is just the understanding of what happened here in history. Because don't forget that the Colossians were real people who received a real letter that was written by a real guy named Paul. And that letter contained real instructions for how they were to live their real lives. And to get the understanding here of the historical context, we have to understand how the word servant is used in Scripture. Because servant in the Bible sometimes refers to what we would think of or what we might call a slave. Someone who had to work without getting paid. Especially when we see the word master also show up. And it's masters according to the flesh, so we're not talking about some kind of spiritual master or spiritual teacher. And that's what we see here. The usage of this word here is referring to a bond servant rather than someone who's working for an, from nine to five for a wage. The Bible often uses the word hireling to refer to somebody who's working a job like, like you probably work, someone who's being paid for their labor. A bondservant, though, isn't paid for their labor. Typically, they're laboring as payment for something else. Like when Jacob agreed to work for Laban for seven years so that he could get, he agreed to do that work in payment for marrying Laban's daughter. But look at the first time the word servant is mentioned in Scripture. Genesis 9, 25 through 27. uh, The first guy who's called a servant is in here. It says, And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. So Canaan is cursed to be a servant because of what his father, Ham, did. Ham was one of the three sons of Noah, and I'll leave it up to you to go read what Ham did that resulted in his son Canaan being cursed. It's weird, uh, but we don't have time to go there. So if you're interested, you know where to look. But the first time we see the word servants show up in scripture, it's the result of a curse, which really only tells us that being a servant is normally not a pleasant thing. But throughout Paul's writings, he'll occasionally address people who have this occupation or this role in society as servants. The same way he writes to people who fill other roles in society. We've seen husbands, wives, parents, children. Those are the roles we looked at last week. But this week, we're talking about the role of a servant. And in this context, it's pretty clear that he's referring to members of the Colossian church who are bond servants. But but like I said, it's not the only time he writes to servants. 1 Timothy 6.1 says, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. So servants as are under the yoke, they're supposed to honor their masters. And the reason they're supposed to do that is so that the name of God and his doctrine aren't blasphemed. So again, the people who are in this role in society are to act a certain way so that their testimony of the Lord doesn't shine a negative light on who God is. That's what we saw 
in the previous weeks about being a mother, being a, or being a husband, being a wife. The roles in your life are to be used as a picture to represent God. 1 Corinthians 7 gets into this discussion as well. Verses 20 through 24 says, Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Are thou called being a servant? Care not for it, but if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. For he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Ye are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. And notice here that no one's called by God to be a servant to another person. But this passage is talking to people who are servants, who are called in the Lord. So it's just addressing saved people who are servants to other people. And they're to use that role as a servant to shine the light of Christ that's inside of them because they're saved. And we'll circle back to this picture in a minute in one of the next points. But we're all free in Christ spiritually. That's what, that's what 1 Corinthians is saying here. We're all free in Christ. So we're to use our circumstances in life to reach the world around us and picture our relationship with him. We talked about that last week. The world can't see our relationship with God it's completely spiritual in nature, so it's not something that you can walk down the street and say, oh, look, he has a good relationship with God. That's just not something you notice. Like a weird hairdo, you notice that, but not, not someone's relationship with God. But people can see our human relationships and our physical human interactions with one another, and God wants to use those relationships to picture our relationship with him so that the people who don't know him can know him a little bit better by observing your life. So we have to live out those relationships the way the Bible tells us to if we want to properly picture Jesus Christ. And these passages simply describe how someone living in the role of a servant should act toward their master. That's what Paul was writing about. The same way last week, the passage described how someone living in the role of a wife should act toward their husband and vice versa. And the Bible's description of someone in that role is someone who obeys their master, someone who honors their master, because ultimately, they're doing what they're doing for the Lord. And the Lord wants to use them as a picture. And none of this, by the way, justifies the practice of slavery today. Hopefully we're all on the same page that a human being should never claim to own another human being. God's not commanding that people who are held as sex slaves or whatever you might have submit to their oppressors. These are just people who work without getting paid. Maybe they're working to pay off a debt they owe. Maybe they're working to earn something, like Jacob worked as a servant for a wife. Or maybe they're just working for a roof over their head and some food on the table. But the Bible just recognizes that this type of servanthood exists and provides instructions for Christians living in those conditions. Because as Christians, we're to shine the light of Christ regardless of what our life circumstances are. And if that's God's expectation for someone who lives as a servant, you better believe that's God's expectation for you. So let's talk more about this picture here in letter B, the doctrinal context. And that's a churchy word. So I'll explain what I mean. What I mean by doctrinal context is just what picture is God trying to demonstrate or explain here? More generally, what is God trying to teach me right now through this, this instruction? Now, this is going to bleed over into the practical application a little bit, but it's like what is God trying to teach uh, through, through this scripture? And that's what the doctrinal context is. And Paul actually explains it pretty clearly here. He says, Whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord. So the instructions to servants to obey their masters is going to point us at our instructions to obey our master. And our master is obviously Jesus Christ. 
1 Corinthians 7, again, verse 22, it says, For he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Ye are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called thereby abide, therein abide with God. So we are Christ's servants. And yes, the picture is someone who, who owns you. As weird as that might sound. Verse 23 says that we're bought with a price. 1 Timothy 2.6 says that Jesus gave himself a ransom for all. And that's what his sacrifice on the cross effectively did. He paid the price for you and me. He paid the price for all of us. But here's what the picture, where the picture of our relationship with Christ and, and something that we might call slavery kind of breaks down. He doesn't force you to go along with him. He provides you with the choice in the matter. He lets you decide. So just because he paid the price for everyone doesn't mean that everyone has to give their lives to him. John 1.12 says us, or tells us that, that we have to receive him. And the Bible's absolutely clear on how it is you receive him. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So you receive him when you believe that his sacrifice was enough to pay for your sins and you confess with your mouth that he's the Lord of your life because of that price that he paid. But let me warn you, if you're here and you haven't done that yet, when you do that, when you confess that he's your Lord, you're telling him that he's your Lord, that he's your master. You're telling him he gets to call the shots in your life. So you've given, if you've given your life to Christ, he owns you, you belong to him. You're his now. So you might be thinking, why would anyone do that? Why would anyone give themselves away? Well, it's not just a one-way trade like, like that made it sound. First John 5, 11 through 12 says, And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. So when you give your life to Christ, he gives his life right back to you. You're making this tra- decision to trade your broken, sinful, aimless life for his life of freedom and purpose. And that's the balance we need to understand with this picture. Because yes, when we submit ourselves to Christ and give our lives to him, that's a serious deal. Luke 9.23 says that if we do that, we have to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow him. Because our life isn't our own anymore. Jesus Christ paid for it and we agreed to give it over to him. But that's balanced with the fact that he loves us. And like we saw last week, he treats us as his sons and daughters. He doesn't treat us as as servants. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't want us to serve him. No, he still wants us to follow after him and do what he asks of us. And because we've given our lives to him, we really don't have the right to tell him no anymore. But he'll allow us to choose whether or not we follow him at every, every, every turn. He gives you the choice. Unlike what most of us think of when we imagine slavery, Jesus Christ is never going to force you to do anything. God always wants humans to choose to follow him. But if we want to live the fulfilling, fruitful life that he wants us to live, we'll choose to follow him and just do what he asks. That's why we're to serve him in everything that we do, with singleness of heart, fearing God. That's what we've been talking about for the past month or so, keeping our hearts and minds focused on the things that God wants us to focus on so we can keep our lives pointed in the right direction so that we can accomplish the things he wants us to accomplish. And we've talked about what it means to do whatsoever ye do as to the Lord in prior weeks. 
Uh, that doesn't mean that you have to treat every work assignment like it's been handed down to you by, by the supreme ruler of the universe. And it doesn't mean you have to fall on your knees and prostrate yourself every time your boss walks past, as much as he'd probably enjoy that. So let's talk about letter C, the practical context. And this is where the rubber's going to meet the road, because the practical context is how you apply what this passage is saying in your everyday personal life. And the primary way we're going to do that is by talking about your relationship with your employer. That's something most of us can relate to or have at least seen on TV enough to relate to. And we can see that further discussed in Ephesians 6. Uh, verses 5 through 9 says, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. So you'll notice some similarities in what Ephesians is saying and in what Colossians is saying. And I've been referring back to it frequently as we've been going through the, the, this chapter because a lot of what it has to say is, is similar. We're supposed to obey those who are in authority over us in our work environments, not with eye service as men pleasers, that just means don't be a suck-up. Like, don't, don't lollygag around until your boss walks by and then act like you're busy so that he thinks highly of you. No, if you're a Christian, that's, that's not why you're at work. You're not there to look good for your boss. You're at work so that you can win people to Christ and shine his light to them. And the really easy way, a really easy way to do that is by actually doing your job and doing it well. So is it true that the actual thing you're doing at work uh, is of no eternal importance? Well, Chances are good, yes. Unless you're blessed enough to, to, to be able to work in ministry, which, you know, that's an option if that's a career path you want to pursue. But unless that's the case, chances are good that the actual activity you get paid to do, it's not going to last into eternity. That doesn't mean it's not a good thing. That doesn't mean it's not worthwhile. It just means it's not going to last into eternity. It's, when this life is over, it's, it's, it's going to be gone. In and of itself, you know, if you're, if you were working in a factory like, like I worked at, in and of itself, what I'm working on is worthless. I don't care what happens to this drill bit as soon as it leaves my hand, let alone at the end of my life. How's that for motivation for working? <laughs> but understand that how you do your job can make an eternal difference in the lives of the people you work with if you do it for God. If you wake up every morning and ask God to use your day at work for his glory. And if you ask him to provide you with opportunities to represent him to the people around you, so yes, do a good work, at, do a good job at work. You should be the best worker there. Not because God cares one little bit about the product you're making or whatever, but you should do a good job so that you can build a reputation of integrity and, and positive relationships with the people around you. Because remember, the people around you can't see your relationship with God at least not very well, because that's a spiritual thing. So unless you're actively having conversations about it with them, they're not going to know that about you. But if you're working hard and respecting your boss, then it's not going to shock them when you tell them that you serve the Lord and submit to his authority. Because if you can't even submit to your boss and his authority, what, how are they going to understand that you submit to, to something that you can't see? What will come as a shock to them is if you tell them you serve the Lord and then they watch you screw 
screw around at work and flip off your boss when his back is turned. Those two things are hard for for people to reconcile. So if you want to represent Christ at work, you have to live up to the picture that God is trying to make with your relationship with your boss. And that's why you do whatsoever ye do heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. That doesn't mean you can't quit your job and find a better one. That doesn't mean you can't ask your boss for a raise when you haven't gotten one in three years and you feel like you deserve one. It just means in the context of employment that you have to be an honest, diligent worker who outwardly respects your employer if you want to be an accurate representation of Christ to the other people you work with. And that doesn't just give saved employers an excuse to be jerks to their employees either. Colossians 4.1 sort of continues this discussion in the next chapter, uh, just in the first verse. Uh, It says, Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. So if you ever find yourself in a situation where you have workplace authority over others, man, don't forget that you're now representing the authority that Christ has over you when you exercise your authority over them. So don't go on a power trip and mess that picture up because Jesus doesn't go on a power trip with you. But then the conversation shifts in this passage and it shifts to the topic of reward. And that's obviously in the context of your service to the Lord, which applies specifically to the stuff we've talked about tonight, but more generally, this applies to what we've been talking about all month, and that's point number two, your reward. In verses 24 and 25, again, they say, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. So your service to the Lord Christ means that you can know of the Lord that ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. And what's critical for us to understand here is the biblical principle of sowing and reaping. And that's defined for us in Galatians 6, 7 through 9. It says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. But he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. So where, whatever you sow, you're going to reap. And that should make sense to us, because sowing and reaping are farming terms. And not everyone in here is a farmer, but you get the basic principle of farming. You plant seeds, you water them, you wait till they grow, and then you pull the, the crops off of the plants and take them home, and then you do it again next year. What a life. (laughs) But if a farmer sows corn seeds, he expects corn plants to grow. He expects to reap corn from the plants that grew from the corn seeds that he planted. He doesn't sow corn seeds expecting anything else to grow. It'd be weird if he planted corn seeds and soybeans grew. That'd be strange. How did that happen? He doesn't expect soybeans, turnips, beets, cats, or limousines. He expects corn. The same's true of what we sow in our lives. If you sow to your flesh, you'll reap corruption from the flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap abundant life from the Spirit. The principle of sowing and reaping just teaches us that your actions have consequences, and those consequences are based on what actions you take. This applies generally in life. You don't expect to get a paycheck unless you show up for work. Well, some people do, but that they shouldn't. That's neither here nor there. This also applies to salvation. If you give your life to Christ, you get life everlasting. And this also applies to your works after you get saved and the reward you get for them. 
You shouldn't expect to get eternal rewards unless you're investing your time and energy into eternal things. It's really that simple. We, we looked at 1 Corinthians uh, 3 recently in verses 10 through 15. I won't read it, but that just indicates to us that you have different types of works in your life that will have very different results for you when you meet Christ face to face. Because Christ is holy, and he's going to make you holy. And to do that, he's going to pass all of your works through the fire. He's going to try all of them. And some of those works are pictured by wood, hay, and stubble, temporary things that will burn up that don't last into eternity. And others of those works are pictured by gold, silver, and precious stones, eternal things that don't get burned up that will survive into eternity. But you get to choose what you put your time and energy into. And if you're spending all your time doing things for the here and now, you shouldn't be surprised when one day those things don't matter anymore. Rather, you should be spending your time on things that last forever. You should be focused on the things above so that your works, when your works are put to the test, they remain into eternity and you have something to show for the life you lived. Because ultimately, regardless of what your life circumstances are, if you've given this life to Christ, you should be doing everything in this life for him. But he'll let you choose to waste your time on frivolous things. And he'll let you lose all the rewards you'd otherwise have earned. But none of us want to meet Christ at the end of our lives and have nothing eternal to show for what we did during our lives. We don't want to be ashamed of ourselves. But the principle of sowing and reaping makes it clear that all we have to do to not reap that is by sowing to the right things now. But I want you to notice that we're talking about receiving the reward of the inheritance um, back in Colossians 3, because it's important uh, to understand that. So let's look at uh, Ephesians 1 to kind of understand what does it mean, the reward of the inheritance. What's this inheritance? Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of faith, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, so talking about Jesus, uh, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So whenever person gets saved, they ask Jesus to save them. The Holy Spirit enters their life and lives inside of them. Uh, verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit's a great thing, and that's what allows you to have a spiritual life. And that's what allows you to have a relationship with God, but that's just the earnest of our inheritance. So we have an inheritance. That's something that's promised to us, and the Holy Spirit is the earnest of that. That's just the first part. It's like a down payment. God gives you that first part right away. And when he gives you the Holy Spirit, you're sealed with it. So nothing can ever take that away from you. God couldn't take it away from you if he wanted to because you've been sealed by it. So when we talk about rewards and loss, don't think I'm, don't think I'm suggesting that God will take the Holy Spirit away from you if you're not focused on what you should be focused on. There's nothing that can happen to you or no decision you can make to lose your salvation. But we need to understand that our inheritance goes beyond just the Holy Spirit. That's just the earnest of our inheritance. And, the part, of that, and part of that coming inheritance is just as sure as the sealing of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith and salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So you have some promises coming that have been reserved for you. 
They're incorruptible. They don't fade away. Part of that inheritance is the salvation of our bodies. Because up to this point, your salvation has just been a spiritual salvation. Uh, if you've given your life to Christ, he's, he's redeemed your soul and given you his Holy Spirit. But you're still living in your sinful, fleshly body. But one day that won't be the case. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, For our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. So we're promised new glorified bodies that are made like Jesus' glorified body. And we don't have time to look in that too much, but if you're curious, do yourself a favor and go look at some of the things that Jesus was able to do after he resurrected from the grave before he ascended back up to heaven. You want something to look forward to. Jesus was doing some pretty cool things. Um, and I certainly believe we'll be able to do those things too as soon as we get our glorified bodies because they'll be made like his glorified body. So go check that out. But in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, there's several verses that talk about this, this process of transformation. And those just tell us that these new bodies will be made incorruptible and immortal. And that's a guarantee for everyone who's given their life to Christ because Jesus has promised your full salvation if you allow his sacrifice to pay for your sins. And that salvation is only complete when your body is saved as well. And that'll happen one day when this life is over. So that's part of your inheritance just as much as having the Holy Spirit living inside of you is. Uh, it just hasn't happened yet. But there's other rewards, other things coming that aren't guaranteed for you. There are rewards that scripture talks about that you can earn, but earning them is conditional based on what you do with what God has given you. And the obvious examples to mention are the various crowns that the Bible mentions that you can earn. One example is 1 Thessalonians 2.19. It says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? So Paul mentions the crown of rejoicing. And in his letter to the Thessalonians, he calls them his crown of rejoicing because he was instrumental in planting that church, seeing those members get saved, and, and seeing them start to grow up into mature Christians. So if you invest your time and energy into winning others to Christ, they will be your crown of rejoicing when you get to heaven because they'll be there with you. And, you'll, and, and you allowed God to use you to help them get there. Man, what a great thing. Think of the opposite. You get to heaven and you look around and, man, none of, my, none of my co-workers are here. But on the other hand, man, if you share the gospel with them and they end up getting saved, praise the Lord, then they can be there right next to you and know forever that they're there because of the conversation you had with them one day. 2 Timothy 4.8 says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. So 2 Timothy was the last letter Paul ever wrote that's recorded in scripture. And he claims to have earned a crown of righteousness. And he says that crown is also available to anyone who loves his appearing. And of course he's referring to the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ's appearing and loving that appearing. So what does it mean to love his appearing? Well, are you living your life in anticipation of his second coming? Are you living each day like it might be your last, making sure you don't miss opportunities to share the gospel and stay focused on things above? Because that's what loving his appearing looks like. And you can see that if you go back to the verses prior to 2 Timothy 4, 8, 
and just read Paul's summary of his own life about finishing his course, um, man, he took every opportunity he had, and we should be doing the same thing. And if you're living that, your life that way, you'll get rewarded for it. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man that endureth tempta- temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. So God also promises the crown of life, and he promises it to them that love him. And the evidence of you loving him is enduring temptation. And don't forget here that your sins are forgiven 100%, past, present, and future, as soon as you accept Jesus' sacrifice for your sins. But giving into temptation has some very, very real consequences of missing out on some rewards. Sure, Christ gives us the freedom to live sinful, carnal lives and still go to heaven because of his love for us, but if we love him back enough to set our own desires aside, he'll reward us for that when we get there. And let's look at one more in 1 Peter 5, uh, 1 through 4. It says, The elders which are among you I exhort, whom am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. So if you shepherd other believers, if you help lead them, if you live as an example to them, you can earn this crown of glory. And this crown isn't just for pastors. It's for anyone who takes a pastoral role in the life of other people can earn this crown if they're diligent to help feed the flock of God with the right motivations, who live as in samples to the flock and guide and direct them. Because Jesus is the chief shepherd, but he wants to use you as a shepherd in the lives of other believers. And this can be as simple as walking another person through one-on-one discipleship, which, quick sidetrack, a lot of girls in here signed up to be discipled all at once, and I don't have a whole lot of girls available to disciple. So if you've been through discipleship and you want to disciple another girl, let me know if you're a girl. Um, None of the guys signed up for discipleship, so do that if you're a guy. Um, (laughs) But these crowns are just some easy examples. The main thing we need to understand is that our actions in this life have consequences. How well we're willing to put our desires on the back burner so that we can live the way God wants us to live, has some very real effects once we meet Jesus face to face. And if we're willing to submit ourselves to the instructions we find here in Colossians 3 and throughout the rest of Scripture, we'll earn rewards for our service as Christ's representatives. But if we don't do that, well, we're still saved. We still go to heaven. God still loves us. We'll just have to experience the loss of those rewards that we could have otherwise earned and we'll realize just how unimportant the things that we spent our entire lives worrying about are. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. And that's how this passage ends, because there is no respect of persons. And let's hang our hat there as we wrap up tonight. Acts 10.34 says that God is no respecter of persons. And that just means his expectations are exactly the same for everyone, because God has given each one of us one life to be stewards over, and he cares what we do with that life. First Corinthians 4.2 says, moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. So when we get to the end of our life, we want God to find us faithful with what he's given us. But even though God wants us all to be faithful, 
He knows what each of us is capable of because everyone is given different life circumstances. We all have different families. We all have different backgrounds. We all have different talents. We all have different gifts. And God is concerned with what you do with what you're given. That's why Jesus says in Luke 12, 48, for unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. And you thought that was an original Uncle Ben quote. (laughs) Jesus said it first, man. So if you want to live your life the way that will bring God glory, man, use what you got. Who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve you or are you going to serve God? Because you only have one chance and, and, and this life is over. And once it's over, it's over. Whatever rewards you've earned are yours and the ones you didn't, those are gone forever. You don't get to go back and earn those again. So stay focused on the things above. Spend your time and energy on the things that will last forever. Do that in your personal life. And man, let's do that in our ministry together. Praise the Lord, man. The Bible's simple. We just have to decide whether or not to submit to it. And if we can just develop the attitude to just submit to it and do whatever God asks us to do, then, man, not only are we living the right way, but God also rewards us for it. And so, praise the Lord for that. And that's my prayer for each of us, is that we'll just decide to, to do that today and, and every, every other day until he comes back, which is hopefully sooner rather than later. God, I thank you so much just for the clarity of your word and how simple it is. And God, I just pray that we would, we would be able to submit to it and we would uh, just give our lives to you so that you can use us to do some awesome things. Because God, you want to reach the world and, and, and praise you, you chose to, to use us to do that. You could have picked any method you wanted and you picked us. And God, I'm, I'm grateful for that and thankful that, man, we can have a purpose in life if we just trust you and we just give ourselves to you. And I pray that as we, as we live our lives, we would just be able to keep you and your purpose in the, in the front of our minds so that we can be focused consistently on the things that we need to be focused on and we can live out our relationships in a way that will glorify you and represent you to the people around us. Lord, we love you and just pray that you come back soon. In your name we pray, amen.